Uh, it's been quite a while since we last we had our last Genesis class. Alice and I were were uh, overseas for a while, and then I was sick last week. And while I was sick, I had some time to dig in and prepare the lesson for this week. Although I woke up this morning feeling like there was something significant that was missing in it, and uh, so uh, that, that I have my. Uh, uh, I made some adjustments in the lesson, and I'm deeply convicted about some of the things that I want to talk about. I wish I had another week so I could repent and then uh, give the lesson, but here we are. So I just have to uh, uh, listen along with everyone else. Uh, Recap, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 15. We'll see how far we get into Genesis chapter 16 today. I'd like to cover the whole thing. Last time we were together, we talked about Abraham was just getting started at the age of 75, so it can encourage encourage those of us who were getting on in years that uh, the best may yet still be ahead, our great missions, the great, great, greatest work in life. Also talked quite a bit about how Jesus was foreshadowed by Melchizedek, and Abraham has an encounter with Melchizedek that's mentioned very briefly. It's picked up again in Psalm 110, and then in Hebrews it really explains that in quite a bit of detail, is that Jesus was the high priest who was greater than the priesthood that came from Abraham. So we we talked about those things. I want to start by uh, jumping right in Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 1 to 16. And I'm reading from a translation that's based on the Septuagint. It should be almost exactly the same as what most people have, just slightly different. One of the one of the verses that we're going to read from is actually quoted in the New Testament. So I wanted to read it from a the translation that the apostles were were using and relying on when they quoted it. So we'll be reading the same as close close as possible. We can the same thing. Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and will be your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, the son of Masek, my domestic maidservant. Then Abram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, my household servant is my heir. And immediately the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but the one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said to him, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your seed be. And Abram believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Master and Lord, how will I know I will inherit it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him. He cut them in half down the middle and placed them each opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now around sunset, a trance fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. 
Then he said to Abram, Know for certain that your seed will be strangers in a land not their own, and will serve them, and they will afflict and humble them four hundred years. Also the nation they serve I will judge, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. But as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, buried in a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the sin of the Amorites is not yet filled up. Now let's read Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down that there was a flame, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and lamps of fire that passed between those divided pieces. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I will give this land to your seed from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he mentions the, the people living in those lands, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Uites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So, God approaches Abram, and Abram said, I have a problem. God says, I'm your shield, your very great reward. He says, I have a problem. I don't have any children. I'm an old man. Whatever you give me in life, it's not going to continue. I have, I have no lineage. I have no, no heir. Uh, it's just a, basically the child of a servant in my household was going to get everything. And so the Lord takes Abram outside. I assume he's in the tent here. He takes him outside and he says, lift up your eyes to the heavens. And we live in Boston, which is a city with a lot of light pollution, and we're also near the ocean, so we have a lot of moisture in the air. But if you've ever been out anywhere in a desert land or after a rainstorm in a very rural area... It's really hot in the desert. It's really hot in the desert, that's for sure. And at nighttime, when the sun goes down in the desert, you can see... Thousands upon thousands of stars, more than you can count. So God says, when Abram complains that he doesn't have an heir, now Abram, I appreciate about Abram is that when he had a problem, he brought it directly to God. And he had the advantage of God actually talk back and he could hear God's voice. Uh, we can talk to God, but we don't hear, uh, I, I don't think anyway, uh, I've never heard God's voice speaking in quite the same way. So he could have a conversation back and forth with God. So he brings this problem with God. I don't have an heir. And the Lord answers by saying, get out of the tent, look up at the sky, lift up your eyes. He said, that's the way your offspring will be. And it says there a famous line, which is repeated four times in the New Testament, it said he believed God, or in some translations it will say he trusted in God, same word, and it was credited to him for righteousness. That's four times in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11 it says, therefore, talking about Abraham as the great example of faith, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 12 it says, regarding him believing God's promise, therefore from one man and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. 
Now this is, I, I think of this story, this is one of my favorite little pictures in the Old Testament. Is Abraham, the old man, going out of the tent, looking up at the sky, and God's saying, that's the way your offspring are going to be. And uh, one of the things I think about personally in this story is, this may be the only story in the Old Testament <coughs> where we each make a personal appearance in some way. We have a cameo role, all right? When he looks up at the sky, each of those stars represent his offspring in the future, the uncountable offspring. So we are in that story playing a bit part, a cameo role, as the star is in the sky. So, so we're there. When he, he saw a picture of the future in terms of when he looked up at the sky. And this is how God communicated him to him with a picture. And it was overwhelming. He said, look up at the sky and count out the stars if you can. Of course, it's impossible to count them out. They're, they can't be counted. There's too many. It's overwhelmingly too many. The picture of stars in the sky, which would represent us, not only the Jews, but it says that in the New Testament, Abraham is the father of all the faithful. We are the descendants of Abraham spiritually. We are his offspring. The picture of of us being represented, we're represented in many different ways in the Old Testament pictures. We're represented as sheep. We're represented as the Israelites wandering through the wilderness, and we're represented a few places in the Bible as stars. So uh, I think about in Daniel chapter 12, at the end of the book of Daniel, in Daniel 12, 3, it says, those who understand will shine like the brightness of the firmament, and some who are righteous like the stars of heaven forever and ever. So the picture again is, the, the righteous saints in the future will be shining like the stars in the sky. Matthew 5, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men. They see, may, may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And, of course, the one that probably everyone thinks about in Philippians chapter 2, in verses 14 and 15, it says, Do everything without complaining and disputing, so you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked, and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, or some translation will be stars, stars in the world, in the cosmos. Okay? So, so that's the picture. We are supposed to be like stars, meaning that there will be many of us and that we will also shine out in, 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 in the darkness. So that's a, that's a picture of, of Abraham's descendants. And then, of course, there's a famous statement, Abram believed God and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, if that sounds familiar to us, it should because it shows up at least four places in the New Testament making significant points. I'll talk about that in a minute. Something as I was reflecting on the story of Abram that I was actually deeply convicted by, the, the first place in, in, the, in the Greek Old Testament where the advantages is the same language as the Greek New Testament. The first place where to believe or to have faith, which is all over the New Testament and the Gospels and the letters, the first place that it shows up is in this passage right here, is that Abraham believed God or trusted in God. That's the first place it shows up in the, in, in the Greek Old Testament. So if you want to do a study on faith, 
This is where it all begins, right here. To believe or to trust in. Now God said, I am your shield. I am your great reward. What's a shield for? Defense. Protection. It's for, it's to protect you from your enemies. I'm your shield and your great reward. I'm your offense and your defense. I've got you covered and protected. I will take care of you. That's what God is saying. Abram is concerned about the future. He's anxious about the future because it looks bleak. He has no descendant. And God says, I have you covered. Don't worry about it. And Abram actually believes God. He trusts that what God's saying is true. And that's accounted to him for righteousness. Uh, one of the things I was, con- as I was thinking about the example of Abraham, one of the things I was convicted about is for Christians who are focused on the kingdom teachings, you know, we'll, we'll naturally gravitate toward the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' laying out the basic principles of life in the kingdom of God. And one of the things he says is, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, and he goes through all these different things, he talks about oaths, he talks about non-resistance, he talks about divorce, lust, forgiving, forgiving those who sin against you, he talks about all these different things. But one of the things that he talks about, and, and it's good for us to be focused on following all those things, but one of the things that he also talks about in the midst of it is having the kind of faith that Abraham had, meaning not worrying about the future, that God has you covered. If you're walking with God, he has you covered. The reason why this is particularly convicting to me is because I don't have an overabundance of that kind of faith, which is a, a nice way of saying I'm, 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 I'm faith, I'm the sin of faithlessness in terms of believing that God has things covered. I have a tendency to be anxious. A little financial hiccup comes up in life and I start worrying immediately about that. So it makes me anxious, on edge, steals the joy out of, out of life for me. But this is one of the kingdom teachings of Jesus that he focused on, and he commented about a great deal in the New Testament. So I want to take a look at, at two passages in the New Testament and ask you to, along with me, take a look, an inventory of your own life, in view of this kingdom teaching of Jesus, do you have the faith that Abraham had here regarding the future? In Matthew chapter 6, start reading in verse 25. This is the kingdom teaching of Jesus. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these." Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, 
Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly fathers know you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So this is a command of Jesus, don't worry. Don't worry about the future. Now, he's talking to people who are worrying about what am I going to eat tomorrow, what am I going to put on. Now, I don't have any of those concerns. I mean, if somebody drops a nuclear bomb on the United States and the supply chain goes, goes up in smoke, maybe that's going to change. But... I mean, here I am, middle-class America. I don't have to worry about where I'm going to live. I'm not have to worry about my food. I don't have to worry about my clothes. Those things are all really in pretty good shape compared to most of the people in the world. But I still worry a lot about the future. What if this happens? What if that happens? Uh, I've got too many things to do. I get all strung out and stressed out about that. How could I possibly get the, the, get these? Get, am I going to get these things done? So. Abraham believed that God had his front and his back and was going to take care of him. And when he didn't understand something, he asked God and it was explained to him. So he's a great convicting example of someone who is living living by faith and putting that in practice. Another another passage that's particularly convicting to me that's related to this is Philippians chapter 4. I'll start reading in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So, I mean, Abraham did this. He said, first of all, wait a minute. How, how am I supposed to be happy? I don't have any offspring. He brings that to God. And then God says, you're going to have offspring. It's going to be like the stars in the sky. And you're going to inherit the land too. Your offspring are going to inherit the land. And then he says, well, how do I know we're going to inherit the land? He asked that question too. So he puts the questions out there before God. I think that my natural inclination is not when things come up and I'm concerned about things to immediately take them to God in prayer and to believe that God is going to have it covered. It's to get anxious, uptight, nervous, and to worry. Now that's not, that's not giving me permission to be irresponsible. I've got to be responsible in life. But I see in my own life a significant shortcoming in this area. And this is, this is right to the core of, of, of faith. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, is commenting on people who had great faith and people who had little faith. You know, the, 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 uh, the uh, centurion, who, the soldier whose, whose daughter is healed, he says, uh, hey, just, you don't even have to come. Just, I just I, you say the word and I believe it's going to happen. He's held up his great faith. The disciples, when they're in the boat and the storm comes up and they're, they're worried that they're going to die in the storm, he, he's rebuking them for their lack of faith. So he's commenting on people's faith. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So uh, I, I need to repent 
to become like Abraham and follow Paul's direction. Jesus says, don't be anxious about anything. This is a sin. It's a lack of basic faith following the example of Abraham. Uh, So that's something I'm convicted about looking at the life of Abraham. Going back to Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abraham believed God and he counted it to him for righteousness. That's mentioned, as as I said, four times in the New Testament. It's quoted twice in Romans 4, in Galatians 3, 6, and then also in James 2, verse 23. The reason why this is important for us to understand, living here in America, in what's largely a Protestant church society, I was looking, I was looking for a particular book, and there was some local church that had just gotten started up that's, that's within a few miles of here, uh, somebody's planning a new, a new mega church here in Boston. Some missions organization uh, set it up here. And I thought, just curious, wonder what they believe. Clicked on the site. And it's the same old Protestant Reformation theology. It's just, it's all over the place. We're surrounded by this. People who are serious about the Bible and get pulled into Reformation theology, which guts a lot of the kingdom teachings of Jesus in practicality. Um, And it all comes down to this idea that we're saved by faith. And it goes back to Romans, and it goes back to uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted for righteousness. So what happens is the the, uh, Protestant reformers and, and their descendants who are all around us believe and teach that all you have to do is believe. That's it. Just believe and you will be saved. You don't necessarily have to obey. Works have nothing to do with your salvation. All you have to do is have faith like Abraham who believed God and you'll be saved. Many people from that background will look at the book of Romans and if somebody wants to become a Christian, they'll say, well, take you down the Romans road. I mean, this is basically, this is how to become a Christian. We'll walk you through the book of Romans. Of course, the book of Romans is not talking about the purpose the book of Romans is written was not to tell unbelievers how to become Christians. The book of Romans, the theme of the book of Romans, I think, in Romans 7, 1, 17, says the righteous or the just shall live by faith. And the point that Paul's making there is they're going to live by faith, not by the law of Moses. And so most of the book of Romans is talking about two classes of people. The Jews who were focused on uh, being just right before God based on the law of Moses and circumcision, and the Gentiles who didn't have that. You know, what do you do with these two people? What do you do with the law of Moses? That's the, the theme of most of the book of Romans. And Paul says, I wish that I could be cut off from Christ myself, that I could save my, my own people. He was d- desperately concerned about the salvation of the Jews, and he points back in Uh, Romans chapter 4 to the example of Abraham that Abraham the point that he makes is Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised and the point that he's making here is a technical point from the Old Testament Abraham looked up and it says that he believed God and it was accounted for him as righteous. That's in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Circumcision doesn't happen until two chapters after that. So he's saying even Abraham was considered 
righteous by God before he was circumcised. The point that he's making is that circumcision came afterwards. It's of lesser importance. And uh, it was foreshadowing that all of the righteous would be, would be saved by faith, following the example of Abraham rather than by, by circumcision. This was a major issue in the New Testament, which Protestants, I think, don't fully appreciate when they're trying to read our own story into Paul's writings here. What Paul was dealing with in the church was many people had a very hard time, the Jews, believing that you don't have to follow the law anymore and you don't have to follow circumcision anymore. When circumcision was given to Abram, he was told this is an everlasting covenant. Now, if I was a Jew, reading that in the book of Genesis reading what it says there, I would assume, well, obviously, it's an everlasting covenant. You still have to get circumcised. That would be my first reaction. There's a response to that, but I can understand how someone would think that, that they still have to follow those things. Plus, they, they grew up that way their, their whole lives, believing that. But this is the problem he's dealing with. This is what Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians are dealing with this problem that they had then, but we really aren't dealing with today, of what do you do with the law of Moses? And then Acts chapter 15 is a counsel specifically to resolve that issue. Do the Gentiles have to get circumcised? Do they have to follow the law of Moses? This is a big problem in the early church, and, and that's the problem is... That's not fully appreciated by most Protestants who are reading the, the New Testament, the writings of Paul today, and they're taking what he's saying out of context, where he's talking about you're not saved by the works of following the law of Moses. He's not denigrating the importance of, of obedience to the teachings of Christ. Romans, <laughs> Romans chapter 2, he says, Indeed, you who are called a Jew and rest on the law. That's what he's talking about. Romans 2.25, he says, Circumcision is profitable if you keep the law. Romans 3.21, he says, Now a righteousness from God apart from law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So he's, he's using the law of Moses to explain that righteousness would come by faith, ultimately not by following the law of Moses. And that's exactly the point that, that uh, he makes in Romans chapter 4 going back to the story of Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, again, there's a discussion about the law of Moses, is that some people uh, following James have come into the church in Galatia and are telling people they have to get circumcised, they have to follow the law of Moses. And Paul very picturesquely says, those people who want to circumcise you, I wish they'd go the whole way and just emasculate themselves. So he's... Uh, had very strong words to say about that. He says, anyone who goes down that path, you have alienated yourselves from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. So in the strongest possible terms, he rebukes the people who want to do that. And he also points the Jews back to the example of Abraham. In Genesis 3.8, it says that God preached the gospel to Abraham in advance when he said, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's not just the Jews, that through Abraham all of the nations, this is the gospel, that through the offspring of Abraham all of the nations of the earth 
would be blessed and that we're not saved through circumcision. So that, that's the problem that we're facing in the religious world that we're in. When we talk to people who are our neighbors, who are trying to follow the Bible and are trying to read the New Testament through the lens of Protestant Reformation theology. And even in churches that I have been involved with, there can be a reaction against tendencies towards legalism and control to say, well, we don't want to be legalistic, we don't want to be controlling, well, let's embrace Reformation theology because there they say what you do, what, what you do has nothing to do with your salvation. Of course, that would be gutting what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, where at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, he says that many would say to him on that day, in Matthew 7, 21, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Okay. If we are lawless people, If we are not following the commands of God, Jesus will say, away from me, I never knew you. So belief only in Jesus, Jesus tells very clearly that it takes more than intellectual belief, that we have to believe, trust in, and follow his teachings. We have to do what he said. We are justified by faith uh, as as. It says throughout the New Testament, as Paul points out, we no longer need to follow circumcision in the law of Moses. However, we must follow the commands of Jesus and the laws of his kingdom. He is our Lord. We are part of his kingdom. That's where we have to live. So that's the problem with people who take uh, Paul's teachings based on that statement in Genesis 15 uh, way out of context. Genesis chapter 2, let's read, I'm sorry, James chapter 2 is the fourth place where this statement is, is, is repeated from, uh, from Genesis 15. And if you read this, you'll better appreciate while, why Martin Luther said that James was an epistle of straw and uh, he really tried to denigrate the book. Uh, because it completely, in this passage we read, completely demolishes his the foundation of the theological system that he built. James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. What is the profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What is it profit? Thus also faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not our father Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. Do you see that his faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's Genesis fifteen six. 
And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So it's interesting. He says, think about what he's saying here, what James is saying. He says, the scripture, when Abraham sacrificed his son Isaac on the altar, it says, the scripture was fulfilled, which said Abraham believed God and it was counted him for righteousness. That, that's, that's, that quote is from Genesis 15. Abraham sacrificing his son is in Genesis 22. So he ties the two together that Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son was the fulfillment of the of, of the statement early, he believed God it was accounted for righteousness. That's the fulfillment of Abraham's righteousness is completing his belief by what he did. So there's no conflict between James and Paul regarding what they taught about faith and works and righteousness because Paul is talking largely about the works of the law. No one is going to be declared righteous by following the works of the law of Moses and circumcision. Here, James is talking about obedience, obedience to uh, obedience to complete our faith, to do what to do what uh, God asks us to do, to to demonstrate our faith by our actions, as Abraham demonstrated his faith, made his faith perfect by being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. So. Uh, important for us to understand when we talk with people who have been taught incorrectly about this to say, no, we really do believe we're saved by faith. And real saving faith, as in the example of Abraham, is made complete by obedience, by what we do. I'll share a quote from Irenaeus in his work against heresies around the year 180 AD. He wrote regarding Abraham. He said, his faith and ours are the same. For he believed in things future as if they were already accomplished because of the promise of God. And in like manner do we also, because the promise of God, behold, through faith, that inheritance laid up for us in the future kingdom. And that's uh, against heresies in... uh, uh, book 4, chapter 21, and Nicene Fathers, volume 1. So he's, he's a good example for us to follow, looking forward to an inheritance which we don't yet see. After God tells Abraham that he will have many descendants, he promises that Abraham's descendants, in verse 7, will inherit the land of Canaan. And then he goes on and he describes that actually it goes beyond Canaan. He says it goes all the way from the the river in Egypt, which is the Nile, up to the great river, the Euphrates. So they're basically going to take a big chunk of the Middle East. Uh, God says that's the plan for their inheritance. And then Abraham says, could you please give me something to show me that this is actually going to happen? And there's a very strange vision or experience or whatever it is that takes place. And I... My, my own description of this is, I, I refer to it as the corridor of death, where he takes three animals, cuts them in half, and puts the, the pieces opposite each other. The sun goes down and says there is a dreadful darkness over the land. A horror and great darkness fell upon him. 
in Genesis 15 at sunset. And there are two birds also, they're not cut in half. And, and Abraham is given a message by God in this, this vision that takes place. He says, your descendants will be strangers in another nation, serving them and being afflicted and humbled for 400 years. Sorry to interrupt you, but it's a two turtle doves and a young pit bird. Okay, there's a turtle dove and a pigeon there. There's, that's, there, there you go. So it says God would judge the nation. So they're going to serve. They're going to be humbled for 400 years. He says that the descendants will come out of the land with great possessions. He says that Abraham's descendants would return to Canaan in the fourth generation, waiting for the time when the sin of the Amorites is not yet fulfilled, is not yet made complete. So God is going to take care of several things at the same time. He's going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. He's going to judge the nation which would be Egypt that oppresses them with a, with, a, with a strong judgment. And he's also going to bring judgment on the Amorites when their sin has reached the full measure. So the idea is that when, when their corruption is completely ripe, God's going to smash the Amorites and, and, uh, and wipe them out. And obviously this is all fulfilled in the Exodus story. Question for you. How long were the Jews in captivity in Egypt? This is a trick question, so I'm warning you right up front. He says, I will, your, your descendants will be humbled for 400 years. Actually, so you want to say 400 years, don't you? In Exodus 12, verses 40 and 41, it says that they departed exactly after 430 years. So I wondered, well, wait a minute. He says 400 years here. He says 430. Was 400 a minimum? Was it a round number? I'll throw out another possibility. He doesn't say they're going to be in the land for 400 years. He says they'll be afflicted and humbled in the land for 400 years. When the Jews first entered Egypt, how were they treated in the beginning? Like slaves. Not, not in the beginning they weren't. No, like, like uh, they were welcomed. <laughs> they were welcomed. Joseph, they were Joseph's family. They took care <laughs> of him. In the beginning of Exodus, it says, then later on, mm-hmm. a new king rose up who didn't know Joseph, and then the people were oppressed. So there's another possibility. They had 30 years of, of a good time, and then 400 years of, of oppression. But uh, that's exactly what they says is they'd be oppressed and afflicted and humbled for 400 years. So I'll just throw that one out there. Now, there's this strange sign that God uses to demonstrate to Abram that this is is really going to happen. Darkness, dead bodies split in half. There's a corridor of, this is the corridor of death where you've got, you know, dead animals on both sides of you, dead, half of dead animals. And then right down the middle of this corridor travels the strange thing. It's, it says, uh, in the translation I was reading from, it says it's a, uh, a burning, uh, it says it's, 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 it's a flame of fire and a smoking oven. Okay? Uh, other translations would be 
something similar to that. So there's the something has passed through it, and there's smoke, and there's fire, and it's passing in down through this corridor of death. Now, I don't know if that makes you think of anything. It makes me think of something. The fire and the smoke passing through the corridor. What I think of is the story of the Exodus, where there is a wall of water on both sides. This is a corridor of death because all the Egyptians end up getting killed. And we have the pillar of cloud and fire passes through the, uh, through the Red Sea, through the corridor of death. So I think, I, I personally, I think God is showing through this story how he's going to bring the people out of captivity and into the land. Uh, it reminds me of the ninth and tenth, tenth plagues. The ninth plague is the plague of darkness. It says that for three days there was darkness so thick that you couldn't see your hand in front of you, basically. It says a darkness that could be felt descent. So there's the, there's the darkness. Uh, the people were, in Exodus 13, it says that people were led out of Egypt by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. So, so that, that's what I think of. I think, I think this, to me, this reminds me of the ninth and tenth plagues and the departure of the people from, from Egypt, where the smoking oven or fire pot with the flames is the, uh, is the, uh, the pillar of, of cloud and, and fire. Just for your consideration, Moses later on reminds God of the promise that he made in Genesis 15. Now remember, Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible, according to tradition. So Moses is the author of Genesis. He's writing down the story of the promise that God made to Abraham. At Mount Sinai, when Moses is coming down from the mountain, and and the people are out of control and they're worshiping the golden image. God says, that's it. I'm going to wipe all these people out and I'm starting over again with you, Moses. And Moses in Exodus 32 appeals to the Lord, pulling out this promise that was made. In Exodus 32, verses 12 to 14, he says, to the Lord, turn from your fierce wrath and be merciful to the wickedness of your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I'll greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven for multitude. And all this land I spoke about to give their seed, they shall inherit into the ages. So Moses pulls this promise out and throws it back to God. It says, so the Lord granted mercy for the harm he said he would do to his people. So God says he's going to wipe the people out. Moses reminds him of this promise. And God decides he's going to preserve the people, but they will die in the wilderness and their descendants will move into the promised land. Genesis 16 is the story of the the birth of Ishmael to Hagar. It's just... uh, Take a look at that. Genesis 16 
Sarah is an older woman. She's been childless, and she comes up with the idea to give her maidservant of 10 years to Abram uh, that he can have relations with her and raise up offspring on Sarah's behalf. Abram goes along with his wife, and uh, it's easy to criticize Abraham for doing that, but whatever. God worked all of this out. They're living in a different world, playing by different rules. So uh, he's not criticized for doing this anywhere in Scripture. In the New Testament or the Old Testament, he does it. Problems come out of it. And God ultimately uses this in the end. Polygamy was allowed at that time, uh, although it's effectively prohibited by Jesus in uh, Matthew 5 and, and Luke 16, who taught that marriage to a second person while the first one is alive is adultery. So, uh, But polygamy was allowed prior to that time. Hagar conceives Ishmael, and pregnant Hagar despises Sarah. Sarah appeals to Abraham. And Abraham, who went along with his wife in the first place, and I like the way she says it, she says, well, may God judge between me and you. I mean, you're, this, this woman here is now despising me. She's looking down on me. And so she's calling God as a witness between herself and her husband. Her husband did what she said, and uh, it's not turning out very well. And so uh, Genesis 16, 6 Abram says, hey, your maid's in your, she's your maid, she's in your hands, do with her as you please. Sarah treats Hagar badly, and she flees into the wilderness. An angel appears to her in the wilderness and tells her to go back and submit to Sarah. Let's read uh, Genesis chapter 16, starting in verse 7. Now the angel Lord found her, this is Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. Then he said, Hagar, Sarah's Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and humble yourself under her hand. Again, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your seed exceedingly that it may not be counted because of its multitude. Once again, the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you're with child. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. For the Lord has taken notice of your humiliation. He shall be a rustic man, and his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. He shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And Hagar called to the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have seen the one who appeared to me face to face. Therefore she called the well, the well of him I saw before me. Observe it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore him, Ishmael. Now Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So uh, he's now 86 years old. He follows the direction that was given to Hagar by the, by the, uh, the angel. The angel says to Hagar, go back, submit to Sarai, be humble, and uh, don't worry, uh, uh, your descendant is going to have a, he's going to be an, an enmity between the other people. He's going to be someone who has, he's going to be a man of the, of the, uh, of the field. He's going to be a man who lives in the rural areas, who lives in the wild 
And uh, but he'll be a rustic man. He'll face a lot of conflict, but he'll have many descendants in the future. So we'll we'll pick it up next lesson in Genesis chapter 17 and 18, talking about uh, the covenant of circumcision and the things that follow after that. So just to recap, Abraham believed in God. It was credited to him as righteousness. There's a lot for us to learn from that. God was showing through that that he wants us to live by faith, to be people who imitate Abram, who believe God, and who do what he says, as it says in James chapter 2. That God was showing here that Abram would be considered righteous prior to the time he was circumcision. So God was showing the way also that uh, that, uh, righteousness would come without circumcision. And uh, Abram is given a great promise, which would only be fulfilled later. He's told in great detail the whole story of his descendants and the Exodus, and I believe even how they would come out of the Exodus after 400 years of, of, of bondage and hardship. And then, of course, Sarah takes matters into her own hands and gives her maidservant over to Abram, and that's how, that's where Ishmael comes from. Uh, We'll stop there. Thank you.